As we begin the, this part of the service tonight, may I again say how thankful no doubt we all are that we can come together on an occasion like this one to appreciate the genuine privilege and blessing that's ours to worship the God who made us, the God whom we want to spend eternity with, and the God who makes all the provisions for you and me on a daily basis. For every good thing cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variable, is neither shadow of turning. James chapter 1, verse 17. As we make preparation also for the lesson this evening, may I also perhaps add one more additional announcement to those that were noted earlier. Uh, beginning next Sunday, so it'll be the 8th day of August, uh, there will be a gospel meeting at the Flynn's Creek Congregation in Jackson County, and yours truly will we'll be the speaker for that meeting. And so the elders here have already taken well consideration, and everything's in order for, for things to proceed here. So uh, my family and I won't be here next Sunday or up through the following Wednesday. But I would ask, as always, your prayers. If you get an opportunity, come visit with us at Flynn's Creek. Uh, again, that's a little bit closer for us in terms of driving. It might be a little further for you, I suppose, this time. Tonight's lesson takes us back to the circumstances, by and large, of Numbers, in particular the 11th chapter. So if you'd be turning in your Bible to that location, we will give some thought to the events that took place at that interesting place known as Kibroth Hateva. Now at this point, as you think with me about that place, maybe at first sight very little comes to mind. But I believe before we're finished tonight, we will reflect much on what happened at that interesting location. This introductory slide is a very gentle one in the following sense. The children of Israel, of course, had left Egyptian bondage. As the plagues had come upon them through the agency of the power of God, you recall that finally after the tenth plague, the people were in fact insisted that in fact they leave. But of course, as they proceeded from that point journeying toward the land of Canaan, they stopped at a lot of places to encamp. In fact, Numbers chapter 33 lists for us 42 places that they stopped. 42 locations wherein they encamped on the journey from Egypt to Canaan. You may notice that no doubt some of those places brought very fond memories, like Elim. But some of them no doubt brought some very painful memories. In fact, very unpleasant memories, such as Kadesh Barnea. Don't you know that as the people reflected on the foolish choice they made at Kadesh Barnea, remember, there they were basically within a stone's throw of entering the, camp, the promised land, and they'd only left Egypt two years earlier. But yet, after the spies came back and they chose to follow the words of the ten rather than the words of the two, God said, you're going to wander 38 more years and all of your carcasses will be strewn across this wilderness. They had been so close. They had been so close, but they chose to be unbelieving. I'm sure the painful memory of Kadesh Barnea, maybe with that we could add Rephidim. In Exodus 17, there was a place, there wasn't any water there, but they didn't react very well to trust God to give them the water. But maybe there's one place that would rank just as highly as Kadesh Barnea in terms of a place of unpleasant memories and probably... It would be Kibroth Hateva. So tonight, why don't we reflect upon that place and revisit what took place there, and maybe we'll be able to learn some valuable lessons that can be of great moment for us as well. At the very bottom of that slide, that 
discussion at Kibroth Hatev, if you've already turned to that chapter, and I hope that you have, you'll notice it's a lengthy chapter, so we'll not read all of it, but we will simply reflect on parts of it. The first few verses do, however, read like this. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. We can already get a sense that a tumultuous set of events took place here at this location. On the slide, I've asked you to note just a few things briefly in passing. But in verse number 1, we learn that as the people had arrived at this location, the first thing that is said about them is they were given to complaining. That opening verse again pointed out the people complained, and it displeased God. The displeasure it brought to God brings us to this thought. His anger, the text says, was kindled. Now, there are times when God certainly is unpleased with the way things can, can sometimes develop. But there's something to very, very be especially noted when it says His anger is kindled in light of something. You'll notice, of course, as that verse going on, it says that the fire of the Lord burned in the uttermost parts of the camp. So in the outstretches, in the outskirts, if you will, of the camp, God allowed fire to ravage and rage through it, and a lot of people apparently died. You'll notice that in verse number 2, the people cried to Moses. It seems as if their attention was at least understood. We've brought this on ourselves, or maybe we should say it differently. They recognized that God was the source of these troubles they were having, and they petitioned Moses. That verse then says, Moses prayed unto the Lord. We certainly would give some interesting consideration to what Moses chose to do. He turned it over to God. He prayed to the Lord about this. And that verse ends by saying the fire was quenched. God took care of it. At that point on the slide, you'll note the name that at least at that time was used to describe this place, Taborah. And that word means a burning so in other words, that's a reflection by way of name on what took place at that location. But that isn't the only problem. So we've seen one issue here. Look at what verse 4 brings before us. The mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again, and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Now notice, here was a group of people called the mixed multitude. When the children of Israel had left Egypt, you might recall with me that there were others who chose to join in their exodus from Egypt. In other words, there were people who took advantage of the situation. Here, Pharaoh told the children of Israel to leave. There were some other people who weren't really Hebrews, but they kind of tagged along because the opportunity was there. The mixed multitude, do you know that in which they were involved? They fell a-lusting. You see, they had a mentality toward matters physical, and that alone, it would seem. And their attention was not on the things of, of the God of heaven. That verse closes by saying, they had an influence upon God's people. May we never forget, all of us have an influence 
Here were some people that influenced God's people for bad. God's people replied by saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Their attention, it would seem, was turned in a way that was too much toward the things surrounding the matter they called flesh. Now, might we not forget, already in their journey having left Egypt, God had given them water. God, on occasion, had provided them various elements and food. And now, under the motivation of this mixed multitude, they became incessantly desirous of flesh. Now, the verses that follow will proceed to describe some of the things they said. So, why don't we note some of them? We remember the fish, verse 5, which we did eat in Egypt freely. And they went on to mention the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. If you had the opportunity to perhaps reflect upon various elements in a meal, how quickly would you remember garlic? Most people, that probably wouldn't be the top of your list. They were stretching, it would seem, in reflection on, woe is me is my attitude. They wanted what God to that point they felt had not provided. We were already noticing that they were given a complaining. Look at what else follows. Our soul, verse 6, is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. God had already been giving them manna ever since the days of Exodus 16. We are now in Numbers 11. They had their groceries provided freely every morning, just go out and pick it up off the ground. That's all they had to do. Sounds like a pretty nice arrangement, don't you think? Now this manna, they use the phrase, our soul is dried away. They talk of it as if it was somewhat unpleasant or undesirable. And yet the remaining verses put it like this. The manna, verse 7, was as coriander seed, and the color was as the color of delium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in meals and beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Now, a mention here is made of the taste of sweet oil. Fresh oil. Other verses that describe it provide an element of sweetness that went with it. God provided them, in essence, a very tasty, a very pleasant kind of meal. I somewhat think of it like being able to go out and freely gather something like a honey bun every morning. Now, it wasn't exactly like that, I freely admit, but it had sweetness to it. It had a color somewhat resembling it, and it was freely provided for them to gather. Perhaps in light of all those things, it is nonetheless notable that the people were complaining. And now, under the influence of the mixed multitude, we want flesh. Give us flesh to eat, they would be quick to say. At that point on the slide, you may notice that the people now take this rather notable step in verse number 10. Moses heard the people weep throughout their families. Every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. It would seem to me this is perhaps the finest Old Testament passage reminding us of how we ought to count our blessings. Here the people were such that 
as we learn in other places, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes did not become ragged or torn. They were provided food, and yet they still complained. In verse number 10, it would seem they organized a protest. They took this even a step beyond individual complaining. They organized in masses and complained and wanted to bring this matter to the attention of the powers that be. And so verse number 11, one more time, Moses turns to the Lord. Being aware of this protest and being aware of that which they had stated, every man in the door of his tent weeping over this, Verse 11 says, Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Moses stated that their behavior, their conduct, their choices had become a burden to him. Now you and I, without any doubt, can understand how that could have been. The mass of people was large, numbering into the millions. And yet, with their concern for these other matters, despite God's protection and provision, it had become a burden to Moses. And so it was in verses 12 and following that additional comments in Moses' discussion with God took place. But may I suggest at the bottom, let's go ahead and take note of verse number 18. After hearing... Moses on this matter. God said, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. I'm going to give you what ye ask for. God through Moses told them, For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. Now, please take note, they had petitioned, they had pleaded with, they had made strong statement of desiring flesh, and God said, okay, I'll grant you what you've asked for. This is one of those instances when we might then have opportunity to reflect on how much they enjoyed getting what they wanted. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, there are some more things that God told them. May I point your, your attention to them? Verse 19, Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you, because, ye, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before Him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? Now, you and I could easily appreciate that God here through Moses told them, I'll give you this flesh and you won't have it for a day or even two or even twenty. You're going to have it a whole month and you're going to hate it. By the time I'm done with you, you're going to loathe this flesh that I'm going to give you. It's going to come out your nose. It's going to be so plentiful. As that verse ends, he says, and it's all because you didn't appreciate what you had. They ask, why came we forth out of Egypt? Do you hear God's people saying this? We would rather be in Egypt than here. Really? You had taskmasters there beating your back bare, having you make bricks. Do you want to go back to that? Their memory, it seems, was much too short-lived, wasn't it? I'm convinced they didn't remember nearly as thoroughly 
what prompted them to cry unto God in Exodus 2.23. They wanted some relief from the taskmasters and the burdens that were loaded upon them in Egypt. They seems had forgotten that. And here God says, you really want to go back to Egypt? When I have a land of milk and honey waiting for you, a land of metals and ores and vineyards which you won't plant, but they're going to bring forth abundantly, and all you have to do is enjoy your place in that land and be faithful to me. God was going to teach them a valiant lesson as we transition to the next slide. Let's look even further. Because you'll notice in verse 21, Moses first replied to this which God had stated. Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen, and thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they may eat a whole month. You can already begin to see where Moses is leading with this. God, this people is large in number. Our goats and cattle won't be enough to provide them with what you've described. How is this going to happen? Where is this flesh going to come from? What shall be the source of it? Verse 22, Moses asked it this way, Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? And now God replies, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Don't you love how God replies sometimes in directness this way? Even Moses at this point asks, how is this going to take place? And God says, Moses, is the Lord's hand short? Can I not bring this to pass? At that point in verses 24 and following, things proceed in a very quick fashion to bring about what God had told them would in fact take place. Verse 24, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He shared precisely and exactly what God had shared with him about the provision of flesh and how that it would be so abundant. Furthermore, you'll now notice in verse 25, the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the Spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the seventy elders, those leaders of the people of Israel. At that point, we're perhaps ready to arrive at verses 31 and following. Allow me to read these again, though they were read earlier tonight in the lesson text. And there went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quails from the sea, and let them fall by the camp, as it were a day's journey on this side, and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day, and all that night, and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And He called the name of that place Kibroth Hattavah, because there they buried the people that lusted. And the people journeyed from Kibroth Hattavah unto Hazaroth, and abode at Hazaroth. And with that, you can see a few of the final comments on this slide before we begin to observe a few lessons 
and observations that might be of benefit to us. First of all, how much did each person gather? You remember God provided these quail in abundance, and they fell a short distance all around the camp. The text, in fact, had said in verse number 31, it was a day's journey. Apparently, all around the camp it had fallen. And then it quickly points out in the next verse that the person that gathered least gathered ten homers. Now, the homer is a rather ancient unit of measure and certainly not one that we employ today. The homer, you see, is an ancient measure. One homer was approximately between 10 and 11 bushels. Now, we're all familiar by and large with the amount of a bushel. And so, given the fact that verse 32 says, He that gathered least gathered 10 homers, with one homer being a bit over 10 bushels, you now get the idea. This was a lot of flesh that each person had gathered. At this point on the slide, you might notice a few more issues or matters that are quickly noted. God sent these quail. Did you notice how high they were in verse 31? They were piled up two cubits high. Now you and I can easily appreciate with a cubit roughly a foot and a half. Quail three feet deep. Laying up there on the ground ready to be picked up. And again, they gathered them, motivated by lust, motivated by lack of faith in God, lacking His protection and provision. And it seems they began to tear into it, and while it was even in their teeth, notice that God's wrath was kindled against them. And furthermore, they buried those that lusted. So they died. Now, with all of that having been said, why don't we note a few observations, a few lessons about Kibroth Hateva? Lesson number one. One of the things with which the chapter had begun was an emphasis on the people's givenness to complaining. May I suggest how noteworthy, how appropriate would be that warning even for us today? Complaining. I've asked you to notice that a number of times, even prior to this, the Hebrews had been given to complaining. Exodus 16, Numbers chapter 11, just to name two. And you and I recall that very various times the source of that was different things. Sometimes it was about the water. Sometimes it was about the food. Sometimes it was about the location. Sometimes it was about other matters completely. But complaining. You'll notice along with that, God heard the complaining on this instance, and He had heard it at other times. Might we take note, we understand God hears everything. It's just that there are times He acts directly in behalf of that which He has heard. And that's what happened here. With God's hearing of this, aren't you and I often aware that complaining certainly finds some very close friends and associates in some other behaviors which are not good? Such as Proverbs 19, verse number 3, how that murmuring leads directly to other sins. And might we take note, complaining can very easily and directly be a sin because it places one's trust in oneself or someone else rather than God. And that's the plague that had troubled Israel. They didn't trust in God. Notice again, when they observed these quail, they flew upon them and they collected them and gathered them with no regard for who could provide daily and who had been doing so for so long. 
They had gathered manna every day, six days a week. Seemingly, they had no confidence, assurance, or trust in God's provision. And when they found these quail, when it was brought to their attention, they were there. They proceeded at them in a way that was wholly unbecoming of anybody that would trust in God. They were committed too much, you see, to these things, perhaps having been motivated in part by that mixed multitude. There is an evil quite often connected in the Word of God to murmuring. I've listed a few verses for your consideration. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 10, the New Testament, Paul pointed out that the Hebrews sinned in their murmuring. Paul urged the church in Corinth, you have to act differently than that. Your faith must be stronger than that. Now may I say, there's nothing improper at all about prayer unto God for His provision and for His sustenance. We're admonished to do that. But may we always in thankfulness appreciate when He answers and when He provides that for which we've prayed. Another verse that seemingly rushes so quickly to our thinking is Jude 16. Among that real powerful one-chapter book, Jude laid before us the recollection of those who in murmuring had acted as God would not be pleased. Lesson number two. In addition then to a close watch we'd better place on complaining, what about the influence of the mixed multitude? You and I might have suspected that God's people, in light of the law that they had received the instruction that they'd been given, and what they had witnessed. They had seen God part a Red Sea for them. They had seen Him bring plagues exactly the way that Moses had foretold it. They had seen His provision even as far back as the days of Joseph, notably so. And don't you know, they had to be aware of the fact, as I mentioned earlier, as they're traveling in this dusty wilderness area, my sandals aren't wearing out. I don't have to replace them. My clothes don't have any holes in them. How is this? And that was going to be true for years to come yet. God made it all available. And yet the mixed multitude with their insistence on and their desire for flesh, it seems they had a great influence on God's people. May we never forget. We can be influenced too. If we hang around bad company... And we make our friends those that don't love the Lord. It won't be long before their influence shall have an implication for us. Be not deceived, Paul would write, evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33. You might note then some of these further developments. I've asked you to appreciate this. In the church, something similar to some of these lessons also can very easily take place. There can be those who stir up problems, those who motivate others who otherwise would perhaps not feel so strongly about this. These others can motivate them to act in ways that would be unbecoming, perhaps divisive, maybe aggressive, sometimes hateful, and oftentimes very troubling to the church. May you and I never allow the mixed multitude to influence us so that we begin to act as though we should not. This mixed multitude was going to cause a lot of trouble. And the seeds they were going to plant in the children of Israel, it would seem, would bear a lot of bad fruit for many years to come. 
One last thing might be this. The children of Israel should have appreciated the God of heaven and ought to have chastised or challenged these mixed multitude. It seems they didn't do it. They, in fact, were influenced by it. Lesson number three. Haven't we seen that even God's people had chosen to pursue materialism? As we noted earlier, little if any regard for God's protection and provision. Rather, they desired flesh above all else. That's what we want, and we're going to have it. Now, indeed, Moses petitioned to God, and God chose to give it to them. And their reaction to it was so unbecoming of what that nation ought to have been. In thankfulness, don't you know that they should have appreciated the propriety of gathering a reasonable amount and bowing in thanksgiving to God, perhaps by building an altar and thanking Him for it. But they chose not to do that. No mention of that at all appears. And in many ways, the idea is a very strong one. Because on that slide, what don't we note this? They petitioned to give us flesh. Note again verses 4 and 13 of this chapter. They allowed their concern for matters like that to dominate everything else. Do you remember again the men sitting at the tent of their tent weeping, desirous of this flesh? Didn't John say it like this in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For he that loveth the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Verses 15 to 17. It is a constant challenge then for the Christian, isn't it? As we appreciate God's blessings concerning the things of this world, but yet, though we appreciate them, to never allow them to motivate us and to be so desirous and lusting for them that they become our king, that they become our ruler, that they become our master and our God. And yet, how easy can that take place? So gradual, so easy for us to become those who worship the thing created rather than the Creator. Romans 1.25 For that reason, at the very bottom of that slide, in that text in 1 John, can't we remember another observation from the same author? In the Gospel according to John, where in John 17, Jesus made a prayer, recognizing the fact we would have to live in this world. Wasn't it true that He prayed concerning His apostles that they would not be of this world? There's a difference in living here and not being of it. And it is the Bible's plea that you and I, though we live here in the flesh, that we would not be of this world. I appreciate that song that was we've already sung. In this very day in which this world is not by home, I'm just passing through. And doesn't that remind us? We cannot be given to materialism. Isn't it true that James 4 verse 4 again says, that if we are the lovers of this world, we are enmity. We're the enemies of God. That third point brings us to another one. This one we hinted at in passing, but maybe it's time to do more justice concerning it. The response of the children of Israel, as seen throughout this chapter, an ungrateful people, an unthankful people, 
a people who in many other instances in the Old Testament at least we seemingly were able to see some thankfulness in them, but not here, not this time. Let's develop some of that this way. In Psalm 78, we have a description of that manna. I mentioned it earlier, the, the desirability of it, and I might also suggest the flexibility of it. They were able to do so many things with that manna. In fact, you might imagine, I'm sure, the ladies of that day and time learned to fix it in a myriad of ways. And every way, I'm sure it was fixable, as the text would indicate. It was not only proper and appropriate, but it was tasty. It was something, of course, that they could get every single day. It might be in that light that that manna is called angel's food in Psalm 78. They were literally able to partake by the blessing and provision of God of what the Bible would call angel's food. I find that incredible. And yet, they seemingly were unappreciative. They were unthankful. They were ungrateful. One more time, you'll notice that in Exodus 16, God had given them on an earlier equation, an earlier occasion, some quail. I wonder how they reacted then. Do you recall them being thankful when He gave them flesh previously? Do you recall that there was a rather notable occurrence in that chapter of, again, an overwhelming appreciation for God in answer to that request? Even then, you do not see much in the way of thanksgiving, much in the way of direct appreciation in thankfulness to God. Now this time seemingly is even worse. On that slide, could I remind each of us, unthankfulness in the Bible is called a sinful activity. It's called a sinful attitude because the Bible commands us to be thankful. And therefore, if we fail in that light, we thus become guilty of unthankfulness. I've asked you to appreciate some verses like these. In Romans 1.21, the Gentile world became and were unthankful. And in that state, they did not honor the God that had provided for them. And Paul begins to list a number of sins of which they became guilty in that state of unthankfulness. May we always be thankful. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, another listing by Paul in which unthankful is mentioned as a sin. May you and I each day thank God for what He's given us, appreciating strongly that without Him we would have and be nothing. Jesus on one occasion in John 15 told those apostles, Without me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. Today, then, your possessions and mine, the health we enjoy, the other characteristics of pleasantness in life, it's all due to God. All of it is due to His beneficent hand. Could it then be that our hearts ought to too be filled with thanksgiving, Paul, on two different occasions in the New Testament, pointed out the needfulness of being thankful. In everything give thanks, he said, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Now that's a strong statement, and thus may we take words like that to heart. Philippians 4, 6, could we close that slide by saying, a thanksgiving, an attitude of thanksgiving will have such an implication for other pleasantness in life. Look at the way Paul described it there. He said, in everything give thanks. And then went on to say that if that be the case, 
be anxious in nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So thanksgiving, a heart of thankfulness, will correspond then to a trusting in God. It will correspond to a contentment in life. It will correspond to an attitude of satisfaction. And all of that's healthy. And all of that's good for the soul. And it's certainly good for the life. In this discussion of ungratefulness, why don't we come to one more and then we'll close our lesson tonight. I've entitled it Answer to Prayer. Isn't it interesting how we can learn from this text even a great lesson concerning this subject? The people of Israel, through Moses, remember, they were demanding a flesh. Moses took that petition to God and God granted it. He offered that which they had asked. What we have noted, though, later in the lesson is this. I'm sure they regretted what they asked for, at least with the attitude in which they received it. Let that at least remind us we too should be rather mindful what we pray for. We might just get it and live to regret it. That happened here, and it happened other times in the Old Testament. Doesn't it urge us to be very thankful, to be very mindful, to be appreciative, and to pray with a godly attitude, and to pray with wisdom, and to pray with insight and prudence, and to pray with understanding. In Psalm 106, verse number 15, we have a later reflection on this situation. The inspired writer there said, upon their petition for the flesh, God sent leanness into their souls. Remember, He did grant what they wanted, but He sent leanness into their soul. A dearth, in essence, a kind of lacking. He gave them the opportunity to exhibit that sinful behavior that was within them, this sinfulness that was that lusting. May you and I pray with care. 1 John 3 verse 22 will remind us to pray with an obedient heart. To pray then with an appreciation for what God has provided us and our desire to always do His will, even in light of what He grants us in prayer. Another verse that touches upon that one is, of course, the Master's model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. When the disciples ask about prayer, Jesus said, This is how you pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. That is, our, our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Did you notice in that Jesus said, Give us daily our daily bread. There needs to be a mindset in us of ongoing and constant reliance upon what God has made available and that He will provide. Also in that, did you note the insistence upon the proper adoring of God, our Father which art in heaven? Hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed means to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be consecrated is holy. And thus, a prayer like that, when of course spoken with assurance and when, and when spoken with a mindset that goes with it, 
is from a person who truly is reliant and trusting in the God of heaven. As we close this particular lesson tonight, perhaps the conclusion slide could easily be said this way. We have reflected upon Kibroth Hateva. The memory is not terribly pleasant. The chapter started with fire burning in the outskirts of the camp. People died. And if that wasn't bad enough, then we have them motivated by lust and the mixed multitude, and we've addressed the lessons that you see there on the slide. Complaining, the influence of the mixed multitude, the terrible state of materialism that seemed to grip God's people at that time. By the way, that's going to happen again later in the Old Testament, isn't it? And how strong it's going to be in Second Chronicles 36. But not only that, the last two lessons we've seen, their spirit of ungratefulness and the lessons we can learn regarding the answer to prayer. I hope that tonight as we've reflected upon that, we too have been encouraged to think with wisdom and to realize that this has been preserved for us so we can learn from it and to use it to help us live better. This evening, if there's someone in this assembly who maybe has come to be guilty of certain things, perhaps these things, maybe other things, of which the Bible does not endorse, things that are separating you from God, don't you want to come back to the safety of the ark of heaven? The safety of the ark spoken of and mentioned in texts such as 1 Peter chapter 3. If tonight we can in fact assist you in that way, you'll have to make certain that you repent of those sins, that you make proper confession of them, and we'll be delighted to pray on your behalf. May I say, if you've never become a Christian, tonight's the night. What better day than the first day of August 2021 as your spiritual birthday? A day that will influence your whole eternity in a way that's good. Tonight, as you would wish to do that, believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess the nature of His name, and be baptized. If we could help in some way in regard to these matters, would you remember Kibroth Hateva and what happens when the wrath of God is kindled? It is in a pretty picture. Surely we all would want to live on the pleasant side of God and never act in a way to bring His wrath upon us. And tonight, if we could help in some way to make sure His wrath does not come your way, we would ask you to let us know the way we can help, and why not at once, as together we stand and sing.